We have been on a pilgrimage through the Gospel of Mark. And so if you have your Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. And just a reminder, why are we doing this? The Gospel of Mark was written just as that first generation of of believers who knew Jesus, who, who, who saw him face to face, who walked with him along the dusty roads of Palestine, who saw what he was doing uniquely in the world. That first generation were slowly starting to die off. And under the inspiration of God and with the testimony of Peter, and we know that, that the Gospel of Mark is mainly the testimony of the Apostle Peter, they began to write it down. This is the first written record of the life of Jesus. And what it allows us to do is have immediate access to the real Jesus. Before all the rumors and the fabrications and the stories started to circulate, you get the genuine record in the Gospel of Mark. Is that me clicking away? Okay. Uh, So we've been going through, and uh, as of today, we're just in chapter 2 of the 16 chapters. But there is a dramatic change here. Up until now, whenever Jesus speaks, whenever he acts, when he does something, the response is amazement. People are amazed. They're delighted. They praise God. They, they worship. You see a little taste of it in that section that Sebastian just read for us in verse 12. It says, this amazed everyone And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Wherever Jesus went, that was part of the response. It was amazement. But here, for the first time, you begin to see some other responses start to emerge. People are confused. People are shocked. Some are are furious about the things that Jesus is saying and the things that he's doing. There's at least three different groups of people in the crowd in the middle of this story those who are confused, those who are shocked, and those who are furious. The paralyzed man is is among the group of the first ones, confused, not quite sure what to make of everything that just happened. We, you and I, who are reading this story 20 centuries later, we're also kind of confused, trying to figure out what is Jesus up to here? Because His initial response, at least, is nothing like what we would have expected. But then there's that third group, the religious elite, the scholars. They're not just confused. They're not just shocked, but they're angry. They're they're, they're murderously angry about what's going on. So what I'd like to do is just pull apart the story with you and look at it from the vantage point of each of those three parties. Because in, in the life of the paralyzed man, There is something that comes to us as a challenge. In our confusion, as we try and work through all of this, I think there's something that will come as a great source of comfort. And even in the response of the religious leaders, even in their anger, there's something that I want you to see that I think you will find very empowering. So we're going to look at a challenge, a source of comfort, and a source of empowerment. Let's start with the paralyzed man here. He certainly is as surprised and shocked as anyone else. Here's a man, one of my heroes in the Bible. I mean, this paralyzed man and his friends, what they do to get this man to Jesus is nothing short of heroic. You know those verses, Mark 2, 3, and 4. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. 
since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat that the paralyzed man was lying on. These are heroes to me. Because they have that, we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus attitude. And there's something about that kind of conviction that's admirable. It couldn't be more dramatic. I mean, can you imagine what would happen if, if we started to see dust and then the tiles began to give way, and then it was lit up to the sun, and then somebody just drops in on us. That's exactly what's happening here. What is it that he wants from Jesus? Well, everybody kind of knows, right? The paralyzed man knows. He wants to walk again. The friends know. That's why, that's why they went to this extraordinary effort to get him to Jesus. The crowds, even the crowds would know. It seems the only person who doesn't know is Jesus, or at least on the surface. Because if he did know, you would think the first thing out of his mouth would be, rise up and walk. Your faith has made you well. Well, Jesus offers the faith part, commends them on on their faith, their conviction that we're going to do everything we need to do to get this man to Jesus. But but what does he say first? Verse 5, not be healed, He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. That's not what the man was asking for. And you kind of wonder what his response was in that moment. Gee, thanks. But Jesus, that's not why we're here. I mean, there's obviously a more immediate problem. Can we address these legs that don't work and haven't worked in a long time? That's the immediate problem. And Jesus, in his response, seems to say, actually, no, it isn't. There's something even more important. You think you know the most serious problems in your life. You don't. It's almost as if he's suggesting, look, I know you have problems. I know that there's suffering, and we're going to get to that. I I know you've been the victim of some terrible things that have happened to you, and they weren't your fault. And we're going to address that. But you need to realize that the main problem in your life is not just the circumstances. It's the sin. That the the main problem is not what's happening to you. It's what's happening in you. And boy, that is not a message that plays in the 21st century in this part of the world. In fact, as I was preparing the message, I'm thinking, am I really going to stand up there and say that in the GTA in 2024, that your main problem is not all the bad things that are happening to you in life, it's what's going on deep inside of you. It's sin. But I want to show you what the text actually says here. And if you find this offensive, maybe you at least could consider this. Ironically, when you say to somebody, what Jesus is saying to us, that the main problem of your life is not what's happened to you, not what people have done to you, not what's occurred. The main problem is what's going on inside of you, how you've responded to that. Ironically, that's encouraging. It's encouraging. I'll show you why. You can't do much about most of the things that have happened to you. You can't control the circumstances of life. But you can do something about what's going on inside of you. I think, I mean, metaphorically, it's almost like Jesus is taking him deep. 
so much deeper than he really thought he was going. By coming to me and simply asking for me to heal your body, you're not going deep enough. We're going to deal with that, but I want to take you deeper. I mean, surely this man, this, this poor paralyzed man, and his friends, they, they were there with the hope that he would walk again. If only I could walk again, my life would be perfect. Unending happiness, joy, and delight. I'd never be discontent again. No complaints. But we know that's not true, don't we? We know that those states of, of happiness where the world just feels good and right, that they're not forever. They don't last. And there you are two months later or, or four months later, and it, it rises up inside of you again. Discontent, anxiety, worry. Because deep down, the roots of human discontent are in here, not out there. One of the one of the better illustrations I ever heard of this came from a, a writer, Cynthia Heimel was her name. Uh, she used to write for a, an urban publication called The Village of Voice, came out of New York. She wrote, wrote one particular series of articles that became really, really famous. Uh, now, this is going back a number of years, so you know, forgive me if uh, it's not something that happened yesterday, but uh, Cynthia was somebody who, who knew lots of people in and around that, that circle of, uh, of hardworking, up-and-coming actors and artists, people who were working in restaurants and, and punching tickets at theaters and, and really striving to break through, to become famous. And she lists a whole bunch of them by name, and you would know all of them. I'm not going to do that because I don't want you to be distracted thinking, well, is that, is that really what Brad Pitt is like? No, he wasn't one of them. But I want you to hear a little bit of what she says. When they were struggling people like all of us, looking up and saying, if only I had that, then my life would be fine. If only, if only I could walk. But in their case, if only I could make it in business. If only I had that promotion, that relationship, that house. If, if only. We're all kind of walking around doing that, aren't we? She said, when they were like that, when they hadn't made it yet, when they were like the rest of us, they were stressed. Yes, they were kind of driven. Uh, they tended to get angry. And they too would get upset. But But when they actually got the deepest desire of their heart, when they broke through, became famous, successful, they became awful. They became unstable, angry, erratic, manic, unhappier than they used to be. And here, she says, is her attempt to explain it. She says, I pity them in this. Celebrities who were once more pleasant human beings, now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame, they worked, they pushed. And then the morning after they became famous, we find them on their couch having taken an overdose. Because that thing that they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything else okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, was going to provide them with, with personal fulfillment and happiness, that thing has now happened and they're more miserable than they ever were because their circumstances had changed 
but they were still them, howling and insufferable. Is there something I can do to fix this? Does anybody know? <laughs> Batteries? Sorry, people. Okay. <laughs> Interestingly, her response to this situation is, is pity, not scorn. When they finally attained the one thing that they'd been longing for, they realized that that wasn't it. And she makes a statement. This is where we're leading. This takes my breath away because it feels like it could have come right out of the pages of Scripture. Romans chapter 1. She says, I think if God really wanted to play a rotten joke on you and I, he would grant us the deepest wishes of our heart and then giggle merrily when we realize that even still, We wanted to kill ourselves. You know what Jesus is really trying to say to this paralyzed man? I'm not going to play that kind of rotten joke on you. I'm not going to give you the deepest wish of your heart until it's not the deepest wish of your heart. See, Jesus does heal him, but only after he has done the deeper work. The Bible says the deepest problem in our lives is when we try and build our core identity on something other than Jesus. Because it's a foundation that will crack. And when it does, and when it disintegrates it, it, it leaves us feeling desperate, even sometimes to the point where, where the numbness of life stopping is better than trying to go on. If I had that, everything would be okay. If I had that, I'd feel significant. If, if I had that, I'd be safe. I'd be secure. We're looking to all of these little things to save us. We'd never use that term, save us. But these are the little saviors of our lives. And if you never quite get them, you're always angry, agitated, anxious, upset, and empty. Jesus says, I'm... I'm the only Savior that when you get me, you're fulfilled. And when you fail me, you're forgiven. We think that the biggest problems of our lives are are the circumstances of our lives. And sometimes we even take that to God. We use God like a vending machine. And we pop some coins in there. I'll go to church for a little while. I'm serious about this. I'll read my Bible. And out of the vending machine comes the answer to the two or three circumstances in our life that we're agitated about. And we look for a little bit of help so we can get back on the way but we're still looking to all those things to be fixed as the source of salvation. When we have problems, we go to God, and we know this because you see this. Maybe it's a cycle in your life. Maybe we see it if you've been around the church. People in desperate crisis show up. They're with us for a season. They plead to God, will you change the circumstances? Things improve, and they're gone. When do we see them next? Next crisis. They're back again. You realize that's... Uh, that's not the kind of relationship with God that that has depth to it. 
It's not addressing the deep places of life. It's still looking to use God to change circumstances because we still are trusting that those fixed circumstances are the things that will really save us. Jesus wants to take us deeper than that. I think nobody has put this better, more, uh, more metaphorically, more pictorially than C.S. Lewis. And I know this was Chinese New Year, and, and this is the year of the dragon. So I want to tell you a great dragon story. Uh, how many of you have read Narnia Chronicles? Yeah? If you've never read the Narnia Chronicles, they're short. It would be a great thing to do on family day weekend. Find a child, tuck them in under you, grandchild, neighbor's child, ask first. And then, <laughs> and then read them a little bit. This is from book three of the Narnia Chronicles. It's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We meet a boy named Eustace. Eustace is 12 years old. Everyone hates him. He hates everyone. He's selfish. He's mean. Nobody gets along with him. Eustace finds himself on a boat, the Dawn Treader. They're, they're, they're taking this great voyage. At one point, the boat pulls into an island. Eustace wanders off. He finds a cave. Inside the cave is treasure. I mean, loot, diamonds, rubies, pieces of eight. I had no idea what that was when I was a kid, but turns out that's a Spanish currency. You all knew that, right? And, and he, he looks at this vast treasure and says, I'm rich. I'm rich, and because of who he is, his first impulse is, now I'm going to be able to pay back everybody. I'm going to be rich, and I can gloat and lord it over them, and because they've laughed at me and stepped on me, now I get to laugh back and step on them. And he falls asleep on the pile of treasure. And because he falls asleep and he's dreaming these dragonish dreams, when he wakes up, he's become a dragon. Big, horrible, ugly, terrible. And as time goes by, he realizes there's no way for him to get out. He can't get back to the boat. He can't return. He can't go home. He's condemned to this life forever, being ugly, being horrible, hopeless. And then one day, the great lion, remember his name? Aslan, who who, who stands in for Jesus in these stories, the great lion appears and leads him to a pool of clear water and says, undress and jump in. Eustace realizes, oh yeah, undress, take off the dragon scales. So he starts gnawing and picking and and clawing away and, and starts to think, you know, I can shed my skin. So he works and he claws at it until he first peels off a whole layer of skin. And to his horror underneath was another layer of dragon scales. He does it a second time. He does it a third. And finally, that wise lion interjects and says, you're going to have to let me do it. Here are Eustace's words. He says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, I, I was still pretty nearly desperate now. So the first tear he made went so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. He continues, Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself before the other three times, only it hadn't hurt like this. 
But then there it was, lying in the grass, only so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the other layers had been. Then finally he threw me into the pool and it smarted like anything but only for a moment. And when I emerged, I saw that I had become a boy again. Great story. Those of us who've had any kind of dealings with Jesus, the real Jesus, know what that story means. And for us, it's impossible to read Mark chapter 2 without beginning to weep just a little bit. Because like the paralyzed man, like Eustace, if we think that we can just get a little bit of help from God and then he'll, he'll dust us up and send us back on our way and, and leave us trying to save ourselves through a hundred little things, we're wrong. Here's Jesus saying, I'm going to take you deeper. You have to let me take my claws all the way to your heart and change the desires there that have you so twisted up. And the process by which he does that goes deeper is the process that deals with the real source of our discontent. And it's unwelcome because Jesus has claws, but it's necessary. So the account of the paralyzed man, I think the the confusion and the shock of Jesus simply not giving him first what he asked for, but giving him best what he needed. That's a challenge. So how do we respond? I mean, for for hundreds of years, over 2,000 years, we've been reading this story. I'm sure the paralyzed man had no idea that his life would become an illustration that would challenge so many lives down through the years. People who have tried to understand what Jesus is doing and hold it up against everything else that we know of God in Scripture, they've noticed what appears, at least on the surface, to be a great contradiction. Great contradiction. Here's what it is. It sure looks, when you read this, like Jesus is forgiving a man who's not asking for forgiveness and showing no signs whatsoever of repentance. Jesus just walks right up to him and says, hey, you're forgiven. (laughs) He doesn't say, you will be forgiven if you do this. He says, you are forgiven, present tense. Your sins are forgiven. And the guy didn't repent. Other places in the Bible, it seems to say that there can be no forgiveness without contrition, without repentance. So, I mean, is this some sort of weird contradiction? What is Jesus doing? You have your Bible still? Mark 2, verse 8. I mean, there's something here. Mark 2, verse 8 says that Jesus knew in his spirit what was going on in their hearts, what they were thinking. Do you believe that Jesus can read the motives of our hearts? Remember, Jesus knows what you're thinking. He knows your motivation. In this man, in, in, in some of us, there must have been some inarticulate, heart-level desire for grace. Jesus names it. He says, your faith. Something about your faith. In fact, Jesus is so gracious, so eager to pour out on us and embrace us and to receive us and and to pardon us 
that he can respond even to those fragmented, imperfect, unspoken, inarticulate expressions of faith. That's how eager he is. Or to put it another way, Jesus is aggressive with his grace. He comes at you. He pours grace in you, even if you give him just the slightest opening. In fact, sometimes he creates his own openings. Faith is a gift, and it's a gift that comes as Jesus chases you down. Francis Bacon called him the hound of heaven. Just pursued me, wouldn't let me go. Here's this man who maybe wasn't asking for forgiveness. I don't know whether he was trying to believe. But there was something in him that cried out for grace, and Jesus saw it. If he was completely hard-hearted, it probably couldn't have happened. But Jesus is so eager to receive us, to help us, to love us, that he can take those inarticulate, fragmented, imperfect expressions of need and honor them. Isn't that good news? I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to word it eloquently. Sometimes I can't even say it out loud, but Jesus just knows that yearning inside of me. And not only does he do it with the slightest little opening in your life, he can even create his own openings. If that's true, that if faith itself is a gift, you know what that means? Wherever you are on that spectrum that says, I believe, or, you know, I'm not sure that I believe very much, or I'm struggling to believe anything at all. Wherever you are on that spectrum, people over here, can never, never be guilty of being harsh with the people who are over here. Because faith is not ultimately a virtue. It's a gift. It's something that Jesus pushes at you at a certain point in your life. Sometimes you're not even expecting it. But it comes. He finds that opening. And he goes after you with grace. And if that's the case... I want to say something to, to, do to two different groups of people. That may be you, um, neither one may be you, but I, I want to say something to the people who, who are sitting here thinking, yeah, I really want to believe like that, but I just don't. Maybe you've been coming to MCBC or watching online for years, and you're hoping that something in the sermon or in the music or in the testimony that's going to, it's going to move you and inspire you. And you're trying to manufacture those impulses yourself, but it's, it's just not working. Have you ever tried this? Uh, just simply in, in the most basic words that you have, or maybe no words of all, you just say, Lord, help. Help me believe. Before we even get to what it is we believe, just help me believe. Or or as one of the other great seekers in Mark's gospel puts it, and we'll get to him in Mark chapter 9, Lord, help my unbelief. I pray for the gift of faith, and then when I have the gift of faith, all the other gifts that come after it. And then, dear friends, this is the other group. If you believe, I mean, if that conviction is rich and real for you, I want you to hear the words of an elderly grandmother in one of the other great fables about the gospel. George MacDonald, the grandmother says, are you so, so arrogant as to think that people who believe less than you have something wrong with their heads that's not also wrong with yours? 
that it's your wisdom and your clear-headedness that brought you to the great place that you are. Don't be so proud. Those who believe more must never be harsh with those who believe less. So there's this assurance that, that you have Jesus. You have Jesus with cause, willing to go deep, but also Jesus is so gracious, so eager to bless and embrace that he'll respond to even the most inarticulate, fragmented, flawed, imperfect expression of need. In some ways, I think all we really have to do is just kind of ache into God's direction. We just, we ache, we can't even name it. And that's enough. Jesus grabs the opening and and then grace begins to pour through. And then faith. And then with faith, all of the richness of what Jesus brings. So we have the, the surprise of the paralyzed man and Jesus taking him deep. We have the confusion of us who are trying to reconcile what's going on here and the assurance that Jesus will take every opportunity, every opening to bring faith into your life. The third little group, how are you doing? You okay? Do you want to just do a little wiggle in your seats, get the blood flowing? The third group is the religious leaders. Their response, shock, anger. And this is where they begin to plot. They begin to plot against Jesus. And actually, if we see how Jesus responds to this group, you get not just the challenge that comes in the paralyzed man's perspective, not just the assurance that comes as we wrestle through what Jesus is really doing. There's a certain amount of empowerment that happens here. Let me show you where. Uh, if Jesus is, is here to heal, and he does heal, he heals that paralyzed man. He heals him first at the deepest level, your sins have forgiven you. And then he heals him at, at the level of physical need. Take up your mat and walk. Here's where the power comes in. Verse 6. You're with me? Chapter 2, verse 6. Some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow think he can talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're absolutely right. They're religion scholars. I mean, they ought to be right. You know what Jesus is claiming here, right? Tom, Dick, and Harry walk into a bar. Tom punches Dick, smacking them out. There's blood everywhere. Harry goes up to Tom and says, Tom, I forgive you for punching Dick over here. What's Dick going to say? Harry, you can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him. I'm the one who was wronged here. You can only forgive a sin if it's happening against you. Common sense, right? You know what Jesus is claiming when he looks at a man and says, I forgive you of all of your sins. He's saying all of your sins have been against me. The only person who could possibly say to another human being, I forgive all your sins would be your creator. The one who made you. The one who says, I've made you for a purpose. And when you violate that purpose, you're violating at the core everything I made you to be. Only your creator can say that. Only your Lord could say that. And Jesus, in forgiving the man, is saying exactly that. This is God Almighty in flesh. 
And when all of those religious leaders realize that, that this man is not just claiming to be a miracle worker, that he's claiming to be Lord of the universe. How does Jesus respond? This is what's so interesting. Verses 8 and 9. It says, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Remember, he has insight into what's going on inside. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? I want you to have this question in your mind. There's two options. Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, hey, get up, take your mat, and walk away? It's one of the great questions, and it's been studied now for 20 centuries. Which is easier? Class, which is easier? (laughs) What's Jesus trying to get across here? At first look, Jesus seems to be saying, hey, anybody could say your sins are forgiven, but not everybody can heal a paralyzed man. So to show you that I am, in fact, the Lord of heaven and earth with authority to forgive sins, I say to you now, pick up your mat and walk. So at first glance, it looks like it's saying, boy, it's a lot harder to heal someone than just to say you're forgiven. And that's probably right for us. I can't, I can't heal anybody. But there's more than one way of answering the question. On the one hand, what he does in a sense, saying, of, of course anyone can say your sins are forgiven, but to prove to you that I'm the Lord of heaven, take up your mat and walk. But let's look at this just carefully, just for a couple minutes and then we're done. That word, say, the verb, anyone can say your sins are forgiven. Now I say Take up your mat and walk. That word say is a synonym for the word do. When he says take up your bed and walk, it's actually accomplishing something. Something happens. He does it. The word, the saying, affects the healing, the doing. The same is true when he says your sins are forgiven. He doesn't just say it. It has effect. He's accomplishing something. Really, when you unpack it, what's getting communicated here is just the opposite of what we think. My friends, it is going to be infinitely, infinitely, infinitely harder to affect the forgiveness of sins than this one little miracle. I'm not just here to entertain you with flashy miracles, I'm the Savior. And only the Savior of the world will be able to say and then effect the words, your sins are forgiven. Most readers of the Bible would say that it's in this spot, as early as chapter 2, that the shadow of a cross begins to fall across the path of Jesus. Why? Jesus knows what they're thinking. He knows that if he heals this man, if he shows that he's not just a miracle worker, but he's one who's come in power and also acting as the savior of the world, if that's his claim, he knows what charge is coming next. Blasphemy. And he knows the penalty. Execution. He knows that if he heals the man, he's taking the first step on that inexorable path towards the cross. 
And he looks around at the crowd. Half of them want to kill him. Half of them are confused. Lots of them just want to use Jesus to get whatever little bit of of, of help and miracle that they need, and then they'll go on with their life. Here's the great irony. By performing that act of healing, he's actually taking the first step down the road to his own death. He's affecting forgiveness. Does that make sense? He's not just saying it. He's putting in motion the plan that accomplishes it. And he knows that the only way he's ever going to make the legs of that man walk are if he commits himself to a path that will see his own legs immobilized because they're pinned to a cross. They go together. They have to go together. The only way he makes that man dance is if he dies. And in that moment, he sees the people around him. Some of them at their very worst. Here's this group of people who are already plotting to kill him. People who are using him. And in that moment, he chooses to love them still. Some of you have been married a long time. (laughs) I think I've been married long enough to say this, 31 years. To have somebody look at you and see you at your worst and say, I still love you. That's an industrial strength love. That's what we're looking for. And when one human being can give it to another, that's only a small taste of what happens when the Lord of the universe, the one who has the authority to forgive sins, your author, your creator, sees you at your worst and says, I love you still. In fact, I'm ready to give up my life for you. That goes right to the heart. See, there's claws to the gospel. Jesus needs to go deep in order to effect real change. And and there's there's assurance in the gospel, uh, knowing that, that, that Jesus will use any little opening in your life to find a way in. But here, there's power in the gospel. How can you look face to face with God and see that kind of radiant splendor looking back at you saying, there is no price I will not pay for you. Great place in C.S. Lewis's autobiography when he says the hardness of God is kinder than any softness of men. Do you believe that? The hardness of Jesus will be kinder than the softness of men, than the things that he does to show you, to wake you, to make you go deep. But the thing that will really change you is the convicting sight of Jesus looking back at you and never taking his eyes off you, even when it means the cross. You think you know what you need, Jesus would say, but you don't. And I refuse to play the rotten joke of giving you the little desires of your heart until I change the deepest desire so that it's focused on me. And then and only then will we walk hand in hand through life and I'll give you a taste of what paradise really is. I think we should pray. Will you join me? Father, we thank you for giving us a healer, a real healer. And we acknowledge, Lord, that healing 
rarely comes in the way that we expect. We always think this is the main place that we hurt, and, and then we're surprised when you take us somewhere else. We thank you, God, that you are still one that we can trust. Because of your stripes, we are healed. By your wounds, we're healed. Jesus, our wounds close up because your wounds were opened. God, how can we begin to express our gratitude that you've been willing to love us to the very end? I pray now for, for each of us that you would help us to receive and, and appropriate this in our lives, that you would take whatever small opening is there and pour yourself into us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.